0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. At the UN Climate Conference in Copenhagen, the question was, was there to be or not to be a signed climate agreement? drama played out for two weeks, with heads of state and government negotiating down to the wire. For
2: the first time in history, all major economies have come together to accept their responsibility to take action to confront the threat of climate change.
1: The deal isn't the legally binding agreement many nations had hoped for, but it keeps the negotiating process
3: moving. The president was careful not to overstate what was achieved here. He, he described it as a first step. But... It was a first step that the United States, China,
1: and India had never taken before. Sealing a deal and more from Copenhagen this week on Living on Earth.
4: Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the United Nations Climate Summit negotiations in Copenhagen, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Outside the convention hall, thousands were arrested throughout two weeks of intensive down-to-the-wire negotiations. Inside, things weren't quite as contentious, but the frustration was palpable. During the final official day, U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon pleaded with the more than 130 heads of state and government who came here to seal a deal.
5: The finishing line is in sight. Our discussions are bearing fruit. Never has the world united on such a scale. The world's leaders are all together here. Every sector of society is mobilized. Faith groups, CEOs, NGOs, and individual citizens. The world is watching. We are closer than ever so the world's first truly a global agreement to limit and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Just hours remain to close these final gaps. You have achieved much already. If we are to meet the climate change challenge, we must act as United Nations. Now is your moment. We are united in purpose. Now it is time for us to be united in action, common action. I implore you to seize this opportunity.
1: President Obama flew to Copenhagen amid great expectations he could break the deadlock. In the end, he did. And he didn't. After hours of closed-door negotiations with China, India, South Africa, Brazil, and the leadership of the African nations, President Obama announced a deal. Uh,
2: Today we've made meaningful and unprecedented, uh, made a a meaningful and unprecedented breakthrough uh, here in Copenhagen. For the first time in history, all major economies have come together to accept their responsibility to take action to confront the threat of climate change.
1: The Obama deal would limit global warming to two degrees centigrade. It pledges $100 billion a year in aid to help developing nations face the threats and consequences of climate change. And countries would open their doors to the verification of their global warming emissions.
2: Taken together, these actions will help us begin to meet our responsibilities to leave our children and our grandchildren a cleaner and safer planet. Now, this progress did not come easily and we know that this progress alone is not enough. Going forward, we're going to have to build on the momentum that we've established here in Copenhagen to ensure that international action to significantly reduce emissions is sustained and sufficient over time. We've come a long way, but we have much
1: further to go. The long journey began with the first step by China, finally agreeing to scrutiny of its promise to limit emissions. Chinese Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs He Yi Tai spoke on behalf of Premier Wen Jiabao.
6: Action speaks speaks louder than decorations. To increase mutual trust, extremely important. We should not go for suspicion. We should not go for confrontation. We should go for cooperation. The action mitigation action we have set for China will be fully guaranteed legally, domestically. And we promised to make our actions transparent. And we promise the implementation of these actions will be under the supervision monitoring of the law and by the media.
1: Asked about the failure to get a legally binding deal, President Obama said they don't necessarily offer guarantees.
2: Kyoto was legally binding, and everybody still fell short anyway. (laughs) Uh, And so I think that it's important for us, uh, instead of setting up a bunch of goals that end up just being words on a page and are not met, that we get moving, everybody's taking as aggressive a set of actions as they can that there is a sense of mutual obligation and information sharing so that people can see who's serious and who's not, uh, that uh, we strive for more binding agreements over time, uh, and that we just keep moving forward. Uh, That's been uh, the main goal that that I tried to pursue uh, today.
1: The deal brokered by President Obama formed the core of what's become known as the Copenhagen Accord, but it squeaked by the U.N. conference with the barest of approval. It allows the climate process to keep moving, but it did not settle perhaps the most contentious issue, what happens now to the Kyoto Protocol. Officially, Kyoto continues, but its first commitment period, setting emission limits for industrial nations, ends in 2012. Copenhagen was supposed to settle the issue, but now the decision has been put off. Kevin Knobloch, president of the Union of Concerned Scientists, came to Copenhagen to follow the negotiations.
3: It's not entirely clear what this deal means. It needs to play through a bit more. On its surface, this deal means that the largest greenhouse gas polluting countries and economies in the world have for the first time stepped up, held hands, and made a commitment that uh, uh, they will be part of an international effort to deeply... Uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions over the next 40 years. Some people said the U.N. process broke down in Copenhagen. Um, How true is that? I think the U.N. process did break down. And uh, uh, after two weeks of intensive negotiation following on two years since the Bali mandate of intensive negotiation, the elaborate process proved to be too much. Uh, such that uh, when over 100 heads of state flew to Copenhagen late in the second week, the negotiating delegates uh, were unable to present them a clear negotiated text from which they could uh, that they could bring over the finish line.
1: With well, the U.S. getting together with China, India, uh, South Africa, Brazil, who loses?
3: Well, if this plays out as we uh, deeply hope it will, the fossil fuel industry loses. You know, the fossil fuel industry has been uh, unconscionable in pouring multiple millions of dollars and probably billions of dollars into stretching out the time in which we will reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. And that's costly time we will never get back again. We know we have this narrow window to uh, get the policies in place to deeply reduce these emissions. And every year counts now, every month counts now. And, And to see... The uh, Exxon Mobiles of the world, the American Petroleum Institute, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, throw their back into uh, trying to thwart this uh, international agreement and domestic U.S. policy, as I say, is, is uh, irredeemable. And so I think if this works, if uh, we've seen it literally in the last couple of months, China put a uh, greenhouse gas intensity reduction target on the table. India, for the first time, say it is going to put national targets on the table. And, of course, the U.S., the president bringing uh, the 17% by 2020 and, and the 80% by 2050 target to these talks. If we can translate that in, into a legally binding treaty by Bonn in six months or Mexico City by the end of the year at, at the longest, the fossil fuel industry uh, will have lost their bet.
1: Let's uh, Let's talk about domestic politics for a moment here. What does this deal in Copenhagen mean for the 60 votes that uh, President Obama is looking for in the Senate on the domestic climate change cap and trade bill?
3: To get to 60 votes on uh, cap and trade in the Senate, uh, we really have to uh, convince those swing senators, the fence sitting senators, on a couple counts. One is: is China going to uh, eat our economic lunch? Are they, are they, you know, are they, are they going to? Uh, grow their economy rapidly while ours might be constrained in a carbon-constrained world. That's a big one, uh, competitiveness uh, in that respect. Uh, and will it hurt the U.S. economy? And I think what, uh, what this agreement will do is provide some assurance. Obviously, it has to, the details have to be uh, nailed down. It will provide some assurance that, in fact, those economies will be in a carbon-constrained world as ours is. The other key thing that's so clear that is not fully understood, I think... Uh, in the U.S. and particularly in the Congress, is that China is well on its way to transforming its economy into a clean energy economy. We're wringing our hands back home while China's on the march. They have a national renewable electricity standard. We don't yet. They have national vehicle fuel economy standards that are more stringent than our our, our own recently strengthened ones. China is committed and on its way to building a bullet train network across their nation. Yes, they're building coal plants, but the coal plants that they're building are state-of-the-art efficient plants replacing really uh, highly polluting plants. The point is once we pass national legislation and the president signs it, it will now be the policy of the land to transform our economy into uh, a clean energy economy and I think we, we will see an economic growth and an ec- economic explosion
1: unlike anything we've seen in the last century. Kevin Knobloch is president of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thank you so much, sir. You're very welcome, Steve. Thank you so much. Among the many VVIPs who came to Copenhagen was California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. He sounded an upbeat note, even as it became clear the Copenhagen Accord would not be the legally binding deal the U.N. had hoped for.
6: Now, if this conference does not get the strong agreement, some would say that Copenhagen has failed. No, ladies and gentlemen, this conference is automatically and already a success. Kyoto brought the world's focus to what must be done. It brought the focus to that whole subject. We didn't know then what we know now. We didn't have as much experience with the science that we would research or the hurdles that we will face. But Kyoto made us think differently about the world. And perhaps the real success of Copenhagen is to give us the opportunity to think differently again. Perhaps the success comes in realizing that something different needs to be done and in fact is already being done. It's being done on a sub-national level. And I would ask the UN to convene a climate summit, like Copenhagen, but for cities, for states, for provinces, and for regions. And I will be more than happy to host such a summit in California or anywhere else the U.N. wants to hold it, but I recommend strongly in California.
1: California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. The next U.N. climate conference will be held next year in Mexico City. But in one sense, it has already moved there. In an unusual move, the Danish government stepped down early as head of the process, and now it's Mexico's turn. Just ahead, climate negotiations and the money tree. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood at the U.N. Climate Summit negotiations in Copenhagen. Coming up, analysis and some of the speeches from the 130 heads of state or government who came to the Danish capital to hammer out a climate deal. But first... For two weeks, 18,000 people, representing more than 190 nations, came together to work, eat, and basically live in the vast Bella Conference Center on the outskirts of Copenhagen. Here are some of their voices.
7: Me llamo Carolina Fuentes, de la Delegación Mexicana. The single most important point in order to have a strong agreement, we would say financing. Well, my name is
8: Ernst-Erik Mark from Sweden. The, the very m- most important thing is of course, to have a very stable Agreement.
5: My name is Zhang,
9: Zhang Xiaoyan with the Chinese delegation. I'm Zhang Xiaoyan, from the Chinese I think the most important thing that is that we hope that every party comes here to achieve an agreement to contribute to the efforts of
4: tackling climate change.
6: I'm Didier Guillaume and I'm from France. All states must talk about the future of the world and not uh, each uh, state and uh, position.
10: I think that the most important thing is for countries, especially rich countries, to realize and acknowledge the need to support the second world countries.
1: Now, government climate change experts have been working on an agreement for years. But midway through this historic meeting, the cabinet secretaries and ministers took over. And for the last three days, the VVIPs showed up, the presidents and prime ministers and princes, each given a few minutes to address the world. Among the first, Charles, the Prince of Wales.
8: We cannot have capitalism without nature's capital. We cannot sustain our human economy without
1: sustaining nature's economy. Prince Charles tapped into what was perhaps the most successful part of these negotiations, what's called RED, a new UN plan that would reduce CO2 emissions from the destruction of the world's tropical forests. These ecosystems
8: have been described as the planet's life-built, and with good reason. Not only uh, do they harbor about half of our terrestrial biodiversity and generate uh, much of the rainfall that is vital for farming, they also absorb and hold vast quantities of carbon that would otherwise be in the atmosphere. Unfortunately, the forests are being cleared at a terrifying rate. The simple truth is that without a solution to tropical deforestation, there is no solution to climate change. As it turns out, it seems that the quickest and most cost-effective way to buy time in the battle against catastrophic climate change is to find a way to, to make the trees worth more alive than
1: dead. Tony Juniper helped write Prince Charles's speech and works for the Prince's Rainforest Project.
11: Prince Charles has has been campaigning on these issues for 40 years and the thing that really got him uh, determined to do something about rainforests was meetings he was having with climate scientists in 2007 who said to him that it's not going to be possible to do a two-degree target unless we do something about deforestation. He looked at the science, he looked at the implications for rainfall, for food security, never mind all the issues that we know about for wildlife and biodiversity and also his great respect for the world's indigenous communities encouraged him to act and so he brought together his rainforest project which I've been lucky enough to work with these last couple of years and we've been crafting uh, in hopefully a constructive way the opportunities for people to come together and to form a consensus about how we might proceed and they're talking about it here in Copenhagen and that's fantastic. So Red uh,
1: made a lot of advances during the Copenhagen uh, conference of the parties on, on, on climate.
11: Why so? I think it was one of the things that was inadvertently left out at the time of the Kyoto summit when it was decided that avoided deforestation wouldn't be a part of the process, and there were many different reasons for that, not least the idea that the industrialised countries should go first in terms of cutting emissions and that the tropical countries should be left out of the framework. But I think people have reflected long and hard on this particular subject over those years, and a lot of tropical countries, they actually would like to keep their rainforests and they would like to have that resource there. They're not clearing them away for reasons... uh, that are frivolous they're doing it because of the economics of their country's development pathways and so they're having to do it they'd rather not do it and in many cases they thought it was about having a different pathway that could keep one of the principal assets that they have namely these incredible ecosystems that generate rainfall that harbour biodiversity that are a potential source of renewable income for for centuries into the future and also of course you know the, the western countries looking for ways in which global emissions can be reduced without too much pressure on their industrial emissions it looked like a good deal for them too.
1: President Lula da Silva of Brazil spoke to this issue and he put some numbers on the table.
11: Amazonia...
12: The Amazon is a great heritage of the people that live there, and that's why our commitment to reduce its deforestation in 80 percent until the year 2020. The Brazilian National Congress has just passed my draft bill that has a set of action that involves fighting, deforestation, agriculture, energy, and steel industry. These measures will reduce uh, the growth of Brazilian emissions of greenhouse gas effect between 36.1 percent to 38.9 percent till the year 2020. This effort will cost us $160 billion, that is to say, $16 billion per year till the year 2020. But this is not a proposal that we're putting on the bargaining table. This is a commitment that we are taking as a Brazilian nation and with the world.
11: Those numbers you just heard, is that adequate for the job you think that needs to be done? We're certainly getting into the kind of numbers that that could make a difference. And I think one of the things that has dogged global attempts to slow down deforestation over the years has been the insufficient resources to match the economics that are causing the destruction. And this is where the Brazilians have now gone. If you want to match the economic force of of timber demand, soya bean demand, leather and beef demand, you've got to match it with an equal and opposite economic force. And that's why these numbers now are being talked about. And I think we are getting into the right kind of ballpark. it's exactly what the president said I don't know but certainly we're talking tens of billions rather than handfuls of millions which is where the world has hitherto been on this subject with project financing not attacking the strategic underlying economic problems and so the fact that the Brazilians are saying this is amazing news for the world and actually it sounds like a lot but it's possibly the biggest bargain in history in terms of what we get back for relatively small amounts of money you know that's not even a fraction of what the British government's just paid to bail out the banking system. This could bail out the Entire planet.
1: Now, the president of Indonesia uh, put some numbers on the table in terms of reducing emissions. Let's listen. In the spirit
13: of thinking outside the box, in September this year, Indonesia declared emission reduction target of 26% from business as usual by 2020. This can be increased to 41% with enhanced international assistance. As a non-annex-one country, we did not have to do this, but we read the scientific warning of the IPCC, so we set our new reduction target
1: because we wanted to be part of the global solution. 26% reduction in emissions, he says on his own dime, maybe as much as 41% if the rest of the world
11: pitches in. How adequate is that compared to the need? again, an amazing offer from a a country that's suffering very high levels of deforestation and if one looks at the map of global deforestation right now, those two countries in the tropics account for most of it Brazil and Indonesia, and indeed they're right up there with the top of the league table of of global emitters because of this clearance of land. So again, this is another amazing offer that the world would be foolish to to let slip through our fingers at this meeting if we can find the right kind of mechanism to bring these countries into an agreement. So we need money now and it was wonderful yesterday to see a group of countries coming together and saying that they would be prepared to pay in the next few years a substantial sum to countries that are embarking on reversing the, the, the deforestation pathways they've been on. President Obama says that uh, he'll put up a billion dollars of 3.5 billion for this. The offers being put on the table are helpful. I think they're probably still at the low end of what's needed in this next period. Uh, there was an informal working group that was convened uh, following a meeting that was hosted by the Prince of Wales in London in April to look at these very, these very matters of how much money over what time scales. And they came with an estimate that between 15 and 25 billion euros, so more or less dollars the same kind of sums, would be needed between 2010 and 2015 to cut down deforestation in the tropics by a quarter. And so So, uh, you know, three and a half billion over over the the first bit of that five years sounds a little bit on the low side. But it's good that people are now talking and at least we've got a discussion going with the right principles there, i.e. that the West will pay the southern countries for slowing down their deforestation as a matter of principle in terms of keeping those ecological services intact. It's not going to be linked to a carbon market at least not now. It's not going to be linked to any other conditionalities. It's a way of helping the world cope with this big problem and being done in a way that hopefully could deliver some quite quick benefits.
1: Now, what about the indigenous people? In Brazil, for example, some 3% of of, of the population, indigenistas, are responsible for 25% of the land, and and they've perhaps taken the best care of the land. The
11: the indigenous people are absolutely crucial to this in, in, in so many respects. And I think, you know, respects number one is the fact that history shows they are the best custodians of the land. If you look at a map of Brazil and the areas of deforestation that have occurred over the last 50 years or so and look at where the intact forest remains... There is an almost 100% correlation between where the indigenous reserves are and where the rainforest is. These people have managed to maintain the forest not only because they have an indigenous uh, title there that's in a legal deed. These people have a very different view of the world. They see the forest as a sacred presence that's sustaining their culture in a very fundamental and spiritual way. They don't see the forest as a source of natural resources, which is just about how everybody else sees it. Looking at it from a, from a more kind of human rights point of view, these people have to be part of the process because, like everybody else, they have to have a voice in something that fundamentally affects them. And so that, then, is where it gets very complicated because lots of countries have different relationships with their indigenous people. In New Guinea, perhaps you have one of the best examples of where the indigenous people still control the forest. In other countries, the indigenous people, you know, are not legally recognised, and I've heard Malaysian ministers saying that over the years, for example. So I think the indigenous thing probably will have to be on a case case-by-case, country-by-country approach. But I think if the donor community is having a conversation with the individual rainforest countries, this is one of the things they really must bring to the table. Tony Juniper with the Prince's Rainforest Project.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. Many leaders made impassioned speeches in Copenhagen. Here's one from the President of the Republic of the Maldives, Mohammed Nasheed.
0: Climate change negotiations have nothing, nothing at all to do with money. Maldives is a very small state. We have never received aid from European Union countries. Whatever we have been able to do, we have been able to do with our friends and neighbours and we have been able to fend for ourselves. Climate change negotiations have for me and for our country everything to do with our grandchildren. I have two daughters. I want to see grandchildren. If we continue business as usual, we will not be able to see our grandchildren. To assume that climate change has anything to do with money, in my mind, is the height of arrogance.
1: I discussed President Nasheed's remarks with Stephanie Tunmore. She's an organizer with Greenpeace International.
14: I think the the prime minister from the Maldives gave, as usual, a very emotional speech. And it's a very emotional issue for small island states and for low-lying delta areas. Because basically they're negotiating their survival. This is not just an exercise in moving chess pieces around a board for them. And and as one of the, the island representatives said, they could become stateless by the middle of this century. That's something I think that people in, in, in the industrialized world can't even contemplate, that they would lose their home, the land, have nothing and nowhere to go.
1: The uh, Prime Minister of uh, Marshall Islands, uh, feeling a lot of frustration that this process has not yielded enough to really protect the Marshall Islands, is talking about going to the International Court of Justice. He says now that uh, his country is a subject of environmental crimes.
14: I feel his pain. I really do. I think it's an indictment of the industrialised world that he feels compelled to do that, to seek justice through the courts. And it is criminal, the way that the rich countries are behaving. They created the problem. We've had negotiations now since Kyoto, since 1997. We've had a four-year process followed by a two-year process where countries have constantly committed to doing things that they end up not doing. And I think we're seeing desperate now from those countries that are fighting for their survival, there's no question.
1: At the end of this process, we don't have the United States, China, all the nations of the world bound to a legally obligating instrument. How does this play for the small island states?
14: I think you have to look at, for instance, the Bali action plan. That was a political agreement and what happened? pretty much nothing. There's no trust left in this process. And the only way to make sure that what is promised is delivered is to have something that's legally binding. We need a treaty. We need an agreement where promises made are promises kept. Stephanie
1: Tunmore with Greenpeace. Thank you so much.
14: Thank you very much.
1: Promises made, promises broken. That was the message from the president of the West African nation of Senegal,
12: Abdelaye Wade.
5: when I talk about
12: promises I can say that I've attended many G8 meetings and if I count up all the sums promised it's at least 200 billion dollars where are they and when has that actually been implemented that's why I'd like to say that it's all very well to have discussions but I'd like to come down to our experience in Senegal. I don't want to wait for promises any longer. I want to seek original solutions. And as the great Greek philosopher said, I want to prove
10: movement by actually walking, that is to get down to business. I think that uh, he's right. It was a real speech. He say what coming from his soul. Emmanuel Sek is with Environmental Development
1: Action in the Third World. He's based in Dakar, Senegal. I asked him what he thought of President Wade's speech.
10: He said that he will not talk about money. He will talk about what we can do and what we are doing. We will not wait. We will do our development ourselves. If they want to come and join us, we will work together with them. And I think that it is the sense of his message people are talking about yeah many promises we'll do that we'll that we'll put this on the table so all developed countries many of them have promised to give a lot of money but we we, we are we are um, a little bit tired with with these promises and then we say that as African our local communities let's go together let's uh, build on what we know and what we have. And then if someone wants to join us, that will be a good thing. President Senegal says he's starting an organization called Science Without Borders. What do you know about this, and, and, and what do you think it would try to do? You know, we, have, we are threatened by um, uh, arid, uh, land degradation. We are threatened by droughts. And then there are many scientists, for example, from Australia, uh, some scientists from Israel also who have made a lot of research in the desert. And if these people are, are available to join the process in Africa, uh, they are welcome. I think that it is this, to get together all people who are really volunteer and who, will, who are willing to, to, to work with Africa without any penny. We have many, many many scientists in Africa. We have many engineers in Africa. We have also only to organize them and have good politics, good politics to bring them together and to give them confidence that they could uh, work for for their countries and for their continent. Um, thank you so much. Emmanuel Sec is with Environment and Development in the Third
1: World from Senegal. Uh, it's my pleasure. Coming up, the secrets of why the Danes are the happiest people on the planet. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood at the U.N. Climate Conference in Copenhagen, Denmark. At this time of year, the city is cold and snowy, and the sun sets around 3 in the afternoon. In many places, this will be a recipe for gloom and grumpiness, but not here in Denmark. In fact, numerous studies indicate Danes are the happiest people on the planet. Here, like in much of Europe, salaries and the standard of living are high, and violent crime and corruption are low. But the Danes say it's not money that buys happiness. They sum up their secret in a difficult-to-define Danish word.
0: Cheer case, when
7: you, you, t- you turn, you light the candles, there's warm, you have some chocolate, you're with people you love, it's like, you just, mmm, you know, mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of it.
1: <laughs> we tried out a bit of hygge ourselves. We invited University of Copenhagen sociologist Peter Gundelock to the apartment where we're staying downtown. Professor Glindelach has conducted numerous studies on why Danes are so happy. And over a cup of coffee...
15: It's called hygge. Hygge, which is... Uh... Danes like to say it's not possible to translate that into other languages, but it's something like cosiness, to be uh, in your home, to as we're having now a cup of coffee, talking with friends. Uh, I think everybody's doing it, actually, in all countries, but Danes really like to think that it's something special for them. Denmark scores often at the top of the list, people here being very happy.
1: Americans might look at At uh, Danes being so happy and say Oh it's all part of their social system Because they have education and health All this is taken care of That's why they're so happy What would you say?
15: I think uh, that's probably part of it There have been some studies of uh, The quality of life in different societies And Denmark scores very highly On all all those uh, Different values Uh, So even though the climate is poor Which is part of that analysis It still shows that the welfare state is very important for people's happiness. So the welfare state
1: is part of the happiness, but not the true secret to Danish happiness, because you Danes do better than other similar European countries. So
15: you can tell us, what, what is the secret to Danish happiness? The difference we really found between these uh, European welfare states was that Danes score much higher on various kinds of social ties, so they are closer to their family, to their colleagues, uh, to their friends. They meet more often, and they they argue that they have yeah you know, they have more to do with each other. So we believe that uh, the character of the social ties is very important, and these social ties are. Um, so to speak, horizontal in the sense that it's on equal terms and not uh, vertical uh, relationships. And and a lot of theory says that if social ties are horizontal, it creates social trust and also happiness. So this is, if there is a secret, this is probably it. So how do you characterize this this Danish social connectivity? One way of characterizing it is to call it... um, Collective individualism, Mm. in the sense that people like to be something special, but at the same time they like to be very collective. So we have this welfare state; the whole system is uh, working in a very collective way. But still, people like to be individuals. So if you ask people to choose between equality and freedom, they will choose freedom. But still, I mean, it's such a homogeneous society, so. The way people express expressing their freedom is very identical in a sense, but still they like to do both. They like to have a strong collective system and be able to show that they can do something by themselves. What problems
1: do you have? In particular, what problems might you have around immigration people who try to come into this society?
15: Yes, well, uh, you might say that's the other side of the coin. Um, I mean, somebody said that Denmark is like a tribe, so it's uh, everybody knows each other. They have almost the same names. They live in, in the same neighborhood, so to speak, and, in a small country. And this means it's a very close-knit society. But the other side of the coin is that it's difficult to get access into that society. And in particular, immigrants have had uh, hard times doing that, uh, it's becoming better now, but for, for many years it was very really a problem.
1: It seems to me that taxes are very high here in Denmark compared to other places. Now in America, high taxes politicians will get voted right out of office, and yet
15: the society supports them. Why? Half of your salary is as a tax in Denmark, and people are quite happy about it. I mean, whenever you do studies of this and ask people, would you like the taxes to be lower? Wouldn't say they like to have high taxes, but they prefer high taxes to low taxes if it means that they can have a well-functioning welfare state. And in Denmark, everything is sort of state controlled. So the hospitals, the schools, everything is controlled by the the local government or or the central government. So we pay for this in our taxes. And um, this kind of welfare state means that everybody gets more or less the same from the state, And this is what the Danes like. They like uh, an egalitarian society.
1: Peter Guntelak is a professor of sociology at the University of Copenhagen. Thank you so much.
15: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: Where the rubber meets the road, it's usually cars that rule. But in Copenhagen, bicycles are king. More than one in three residents cycle to work or school, making this one of the top cycling cities in the world. Living on Earth's Eileen Balinski went for a spin.
9: Bicycles are everywhere in Copenhagen, On the streets, on the subways, leaning against buildings, parked on sidewalks. Everyone bicycles in Copenhagen. That's Marie Kastrup. Cycling's a huge part of her life.
7: She's the project manager for the city's bicycle secretariat. So I bicycle to work every day. Every time I go visit my grandmother, I take my bicycle. When I go do my shopping, everything is done by bike. Day or night, rain, wind,
9: cold. Copenhageners pedal three-quarters of a million miles each year. But that's not the way it was before the oil embargo in 1973. Back then, just about all of Denmark's oil came from the Middle
7: East. It has to do with the, a big public demand in the 70s because of the oil crisis back then that the politicians in Denmark and in Copenhagen started to prioritize cycling and without the massive political investments in cycling we couldn't have gotten as far as we are now. You won't find much spandex
9: or fancy biking gear in this city. Most bikes are sturdy, you might say clunkers, with guards that protect business suits and dresses from a greasy chain. Cycling
7: is simply a part of everyday life here in Denmark. It's just something that you do because it's the obvious mode of transport. It's not a part of your identity. It's definitely not a part of mine, but I wanted to check it out for myself. Right now we're going towards the busiest place in Copenhagen for cyclists. It's a bridge that connects the medieval centre of Copenhagen with the more residential uh, quarters, neighbourhoods of Copenhagen. Okay, shall we go? Let's go. hadn't been on a bike in years.
9: In Boston, where I live, the busy streets make biking downright dangerous.
7: OK, I'm
9: not used to these back they no, no. I had them as a kid.
7: <laughs> <laughs> Take your time.
9: Getting back on a bike is like, well, getting back on a bike. Copenhagen streets are flat, so riding is easy here. There are eight foot wide bike paths, or tracks, between the sidewalk and parked cars, so riders are protected.
7: About
9: At a busy intersection, trucks and cars zip by quickly, and so do bicycles. Copenhagen city planners are trying a number of experiments
7: to make cycling even faster, safer, and easier. To the left, we can see a piece of the square where um, we made this uh, experiment with some yellow lines crossing the pavement, actually. Usually, it's
9: illegal for bike riders to cross over a sidewalk. The yellow lines allow cyclists to
7: take a shortcut without a penalty. And instead of of just handing out a lot of fines, we wanted to accommodate these cyclists that really needed a shortcut. And it actually does work. We haven't seen any accidents between pedestrians and cyclists. Another thing we did was to implement uh, green traffic waves for cyclists, which means that you don't have to stop at red lights at, at intersections. So the traffic lights are actually uh, following the cyclists instead of the cars. These traffic lights are timed to give priority
9: to bikes during rush hour. 36,000 cyclists pass through this part of
7: town every day. Now we will uh, cross the bridge and go out of Nørrebrogade, where you can see some more details of the traffic experiments.
9: Since there are twice as many cyclists as drivers in this part of Copenhagen, Some of
7: the streets are closed to cars. The cars took up more than two-thirds of the space on the street. So we thought, why not make the allocation of space reflect the actual use? And so, as you can see, we doubled the cycle track, which then reduced the space for cars um, so that there was more space for cyclists. And it actually worked.
9: There are 217 miles of bike tracks in Copenhagen. Plus 25 miles of tree-lined cycle routes that crisscross in the city center. They're reserved only for bikes and pedestrians, and there are plans for even more.
7: In Copenhagen, investing in cycling is not just for the bicycles. It's to make a better city. And in the city center, we just have too much congestion. If we want to have cars for everyone, so the bicycle is a very space-economic mode of transport. And people in Copenhagen who choose pedal power are an enthusiastic bunch.
8: It's economical. It's best for our uh, little economy, so we just use the bike.
7: It's uh, easier to get around. Also, it costs a lot of money to take the bus. Then it's uh, for free and easy. It's freedom. You can get anywhere you want in a very short amount of time. And you get exercise, and you get fresh air, and all the good environmental stuff as well.
9: In Copenhagen's harbour is a statue of the city's icon. It's Hans Christian Andersen's little mermaid. But now, the city's bicycle project manager Marie Kastrup says Copenhagen has a new symbol.
7: The bicycle girl is this cultural icon in uh, in Denmark. It sort of uh, represents this healthy, authentic, happy, active woman uh, which is the symbol of Denmark. This... uh, freedom that you can have on a bicycle and also sort of a healthy uh, democratic feeling that everyone is free to go on the bicycle and do whatever they want.
9: And what Copenhagen wants is to have half its residents commuting by bicycle in five years. Pedaling the streets of Copenhagen for Living on Earth, I'm Eileen Bolinsky.
1: A bicycle needs a bell to warn others on the road because it's so quiet. And as it turns out, electric cars and some hybrids might need something similar. Now, a bell for a car seems, well, undignified. And a constant horn is annoying. So that's where Nick Zakharov comes in. He set up a computer at a green technology expo during the climate talks here in Copenhagen to poll people about what should be the sounds of the car of the future. I asked Nick why electric cars need a special noise.
13: Well, the main issue is that under 25 kilometers an hour, they're essentially silent vehicles to pedestrians and cyclists. And actually, there's a larger instance of accidents with hybrid cars at low speeds than with a normal combustion engine, because we expect a car to make a sound. So now we're considering, and we, we've been trying to raise the issue and the debate about what should an electric vehicle sound like in the future. And we've uh, set up a listening test with some different types of sounds to actually gauge uh, consumer opinion about how, an electric car should sound and what we should be designing for all right well can you show me what you're working on yeah sure well what we have here is we have a number of sounds which have been designed by sound designers uh, i'll go through some of the let's say more irritating or alarming sounds okay let's start um,
1: here with um this is your lowest rated sound it looks like on yes. your chart uh, you call it emission free can i Indeed. take a listen yep Kind of sounds like another planet.
13: Yeah, exactly. We might not want our uh, cities populated with this sound. Uh, okay.
1: Uh, sounds like a submarine. Exactly. So now you're going to take us to a few better things. I think we'll try and do that.
13: These are, a bit more These are the things we may have seen in some uh, movies with uh, futuristic cars. Well. Well, I think I like this a little bit more than the others that I've heard so far. I wouldn't disagree with you. (laughs) And, And as we say, this is starting to get... Moderately uh, reasonable scores. And also, we have to look at the context that it will be used in. So a sound like that will be used outdoors where there is wind. So a sound like that might be very subtle, but it's not going to be very audible.
1: Well, look, Nick, you know, I can say this to you confidentially. One of the problems <laughs> with an electric car is it has this image of, you know, kind of a neutered, nerdy, you no know, kind of fun thing. And in America, at least, you know, we've been advertised to that it's not just, excuse me, it's not just your car. It's your freedom.
13: Yeah. Okay. We do see that the, that is the sort of image that, that the vehicles have uh, mostly today but we also see that there are some sports uh, electric vehicles being developed and these are actually very futuristic, very powerful, very, in a way, I might say macho uh, they're giving us a strong and powerful uh, message
1: through their sound Well now that is rather loud tyre noise or something
13: Basically yes there is a rhythmic pattern there, but it is very subtle. The next one has, uh, which is uh, the most preferred one overall, and, and we, we, this study has been done with 270 people, but yesterday when we actually looked at the data, we have about 500 ratings now uh, from the website. pattern is something that we will pick up on very well. The brain is very uh, skilled at finding patterns in sound. Why not just make it sound like a car? Yeah, that is one of the options. We can also think that is that the message that an electric car wants to give, to pretend to be a combustion engine vehicle, or could we have something a bit more high-tech that gives actually a, a very positive feeling and a positive meaning, as well as adding the safety value?
9: exceeding
7: the speed
13: limit. And there is a big debate, should they be silent or not? Uh, We believe that form and function are important and the sound is an important safety matter. So
1: silence is golden, but... uh, Silence is golden, but so is safety. Nick Zakharov is with SenseLab, developing a sound for the electric car. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you. To vote on your favourite electric car sound, or even suggest one, go to our website, LOE.org. Change has been the watchword here at the U.N. Climate Conference in Copenhagen. Climate change, of course. Change in the way we generate and use energy. Change in the way nations develop. But amid all this change, we found one thing in Copenhagen that started in the 1600s and has remained constant over the centuries. The changing of the Royal Danish Guard. Precisely at noon, seven days a week, no matter what the weather, the Danish Royal Guard marches from barracks to palace. Some things never change. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Trishkandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Hawkins, Annie Glosser, Marilyn Gavoni, Sammy Souza, and Jennifer Stevens. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Neerja Perrett. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. From Copenhagen, Denmark, I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
4: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation. The Town Creek Foundation. The Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And PAX World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PAX World for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.